Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. It's Friday. Friday. We're Been a looking bit. forward to this for five days. We're excited. But we do have a few hours of going against the grain before we go off to do lots of other things. Uh, and we have a lot to talk about before we head out into the weekend. We are going to talk about water and national security. Mm-hmm. The Biden administration has issued an action plan on global water security. And mm-hmm. so we are going to take a look at what we want for the planet and then talk about what we might be ignoring in our own drought ridden West. We yes. are, of course, going to talk in this first hour about inflation, which is as high as it has been in 40 years and ask again What is the administration doing? What do they have planned? And what should they be doing? You know, I was surprised that they were surprised at the level of inflation this month. And it was almost entirely attributable to uh, gas prices. Yeah, gas and food are the big ones, but mostly gas. We all saw that coming. So why was the administration surprised by it? This administration manages to operate with a sense of childlike wonder yeah. about uh, <laughs> a lot of things that you might think were predictable, uh, right? And yes. so should we commend them for that? Probably not. <laughs> the rest of us, though, in our, our lives, we can try it. Um, we are also going to, you know, uh, the Biden administration, of course, is being attacked from all sides for this uh, inflation. And we are going to ask if there are any voices in the mainstream that are actually suggesting a, a worthwhile remedy. We are going to talk about a Supreme Court ruling that says under almost all circumstances, U.S. citizens cannot use the court system to sue federal agents who violate their civil rights. What can they do then instead? Mm-hmm. We will find out. Uh, And and since we are going to talk about the economy later this hour, oh, and of course, of course, we are going to talk about the Capitol hearings, the January 6th hearings that uh, that played live at a prime time last night. We are going to talk about them a lot because everybody has been talking about them a lot. Except the people on Fox News. Yes. You know, interestingly, you and I were talking about this uh, before the show Mm -hmm. started, of course. Uh, and Fox News did not run the uh, the hearings. Yeah. Fox Business did and the Fox Now streaming service did. But one of the things that Fox News did that was, I don't know, it, it made me angry and disappointed and shake my head was when they were covering the hearing and the committee would cut to the video, the videos that were so powerful. Mm-hmm. Instead of showing the videos, Fox News did a wide pan of the committee members. Okay. So you couldn't see the video. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it just seems, just seems silly. Very lame. Yeah. So we are going to get into all of that. But because we are going to be talking about the economy later in this hour, I thought I would mention uh, the results of this Institute for Policy Studies Executive Excess 2022 report. The report tracks the ways this country's low-wage corporations, which are all now in recovery mode from the pandemic, uh, have spent huge sums on stock buybacks, have used the COVID crisis as a cover to jack up prices, and they've done all of this while not even maintaining the wages of their workers at levels that keep up with inflation. Mm -hmm. And so the story looks at how CEOs just keep earning more while regular people just keep taking home less. It found that the average gap between CEO and median worker pay at a sample of 300 low-wage U.S. corporations rose again last year. So Mm -hmm. that gap increased. Now it is 670 to 1. 
That wow. is up from 604 to 1 in 2020. Wow. While they're all suffer, suffering greatly, right? Uh, and they have to increase their prices. I'm yeah. sorry, that's utterly inexcusable. Of course. It's just, it's appalling. 49 of the publicly traded companies in the study had CEO to worker pay ratios above 1,000 to 1 last year. And of course, Amazon, always a standout, paid its CEO 6,474 mm-hmm. times more than it paid its median mm-hmm. worker in 2021. Shocking. Right. And of course, Americans across the board, like us, don't like it, mm-hmm. think it's bad. An April survey by JustCapital.com found that nearly 90% of Americans think the gap between worker and CEO pay is a problem. So it's also kind of ironic that 40% of these 300 companies that the study looked at had gotten contracts from the federal government in the past two years, right? And over the past two years, they had seen their CEO to worker pay ratios only increase, Mm -hmm. right? Amazon, of course, is in the top three companies when it comes to uh, the size of the federal contracts it gets. So, you know, once again, the money that should be ours, right, that should be serving the American people is instead supporting this growing gulf between the rich and the poor, which, of course, we identify as an issue. Uh, worth highlighting that as we go into a discussion about uh, inflation and who's causing it and what's to be done about it. Also, John, I don't want to be too dark because... Don't worry. Senators Liz Warren and John Garamendi have introduced legislation to end price gouging by defense contractors. Oh, why didn't we think of that earlier? Right. So, I, you know, it, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, uh, maybe this is like a step up from that. And good. Go for it. End yeah, price sure. gouging. The, the bill is called the Stop Price Gouging, the Military Act. And sure, do it. It would close loopholes to make contractors provide pricing information if there isn't really competition for what they do. So I gather like, you know, if you're getting a contract to do a specific thing, there might not be five different companies mm-hmm. out there doing it. So then they just don't have to tell you how much it's going to cost and <laughs> just charge you whatever you want. You know, that's sort of funny. And that's how we end up with the $18,000 toilet seat at the Pentagon. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, close that loophole. It would require more disclosures from large defense contractors. It would lower advanced payments made to companies and provide sort of incentives to get more upfront if they meet certain criteria. It would do a bunch of other technical stuff that I just could not understand in the time that I had to research it. But cool, you know, and then maybe, John, after they protect the military Mm. from price gouging, they can, you know, turn and take a look at the rest of us and and do something for us. And then magically bring inflation under control. Yeah, magically. And uh, are we headed for a recession or not? There was a funny story in Axios that's like, yeah, okay, 10 of the last 11 recessions we've been in since World War II have been preceded by huge surges in energy prices. But is that causation or is it correlation? That's a, Ah. you know, and is it is it just that is it the Fed's response inevitably to these uh, surges? Ah, We'll ask somebody who knows more than I do about that. Uh, We also should note that the Summit of the Americas is wrapping up. Yeah. And I have a funny observation from our colleague, Jamal Thomas, who was watching uh, some of the addresses made by the visiting delegations. He said the president of Belize is going after Biden for not inviting all countries, calling the illegal blockade of Cuba un-American and also throws shade on money for Ukraine versus investment in the Americas. Wow. Glad somebody said it. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's been what? I, we've been a superpower since 1945. Mm-hmm. 
We should have been pouring money all this time into our neighbors in Central and South America. We should have been working as hard as they have to develop their economies. And we wouldn't have half the problems we have when it comes to things like immigration mm -hmm. if we had focused on our own neighborhood. But then we wouldn't have a bunch of resource-dependent export economies that we could uh, manipulate. Uh, right. No, sorry, John. Something about that plan doesn't work for us. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. But don't listen. Let's not get too down on this summit because there is a new non-binding framework in town, John. <laughs> Boy, I thought there'd be some fireworks here, but I did not know there would be a new non-binding framework on immigration. Non Boy, I've eaten my hat. No. So this is the big immigration thing that was mentioned uh, yesterday, and he's supposed to sign it today. President Biden is supposed to sign this. Uh, it's the Los Angeles Declaration. Uh, Biden will sign it. Surely he will be joined by some other countries, although it is not expected that he will be joined by all of them. So it's again, it's a it's non-binding framework to do a thing that not all these countries are going to sign on to. We'll see. We'll see. And it does it does promise some good things. And this is one of the major deliverables that the U.S. has been touting from this summit. And so there are there are good things, again, non-binding. But good possibilities in here. Uh, the declaration, according to you know White, White House information about it, asks all governments along migra migratory routes north to establish and fortify asyl asylum proceedings in each of these respective countries, while more effectively enforcing their borders, conducting screenings, and removing individuals who don't qual qualify for asylum. Like, okay, so this is sort of like, hey, can you? Kind of asking countries, can you weed some of these people out for us mm -hmm. before they mm -hmm. get here? Which is, okay, fine. Makes us relying on uh, the asylum procedures and qualifications in other places, which, you know, maybe I shouldn't scoff at. It also says governments will commit to expanding temporary worker programs and expanding other legal channels for migration, including refugee resettlement and family unification. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh, a lot of this is being uh, cheered as ways to ease labor shortages mm -hmm. in the U.S. and Canada, which is both good and bad. You know what I mean? Like there's not really uh, it's a it's a tight labor market right now. But right. I wonder if I th this is good. Is there an aspect of labor discipline in this? Right. Who knows? Uh, the U.S. is promising increased support for countries hosting large migrant populations. OK, you know, that that's terrific. And then we get a first of its kind and unprecedented in scale campaign to disrupt and dismantle human smuggling networks across Latin America. So enter the cops who we all knew were going to be coming. Um you know, I mean, again, I, I don't think that we should be sheltering human smugglers, right? It's, no. a, it's a gross business. Awful. Absolutely. Go after them. Um, I just, you know, I, I won't make pessimistic predictions. I will just say I hope that some of the more positive and promising aspects of this framework get as much attention and funding mm -hmm. as I am absolutely sure this uh, massive new human smuggling yes. ring disruption right. campaign will go for it. I'm sure it will be nothing like the war on drugs we uh, waged in futility with Mexico. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And hope for the best. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another interesting story that caught my eye today that we won't really talk about too much uh, later in the show, but the um, the chief of police for the Ubalde School District mm -hmm. has come out and spoken in detail really for the first time since right after that tragedy. He talked to the Texas Tribune and, you know, is really defending defending his actions 
and the actions of his team yes. during that, uh, you know, that horrible tragedy and saying, look, you know, obviously it's terrible that anyone died, but 500 students and teachers were evacuated safely. We should focus on that. It's a very long story. And of course, you know, this is someone who is very much defending himself. But something that leapt out to me is that, uh, you know, one of the things that happened is when the Pete uh, Arredondo, Pete Arredondo, uh, who was the the leader here, the the chief of uh, what is this? Not chief of police for the school district. For this, yeah, of of Uvalde. He left his radio outside yes. when he went into the school. And so he says, that, you know, that made him unable to know that these 911 calls were coming in from students and also unable to communicate, uh, you know, with people who were outside the school. He says he would have done that no matter what, because he wanted both hands to be free and they wanted to keep quiet. But what happened was also he says he never considered himself the scene's incident commander. He didn't yes. give any instruction that police shouldn't attempt to breach the building. Uh, but DPS officials have consistently described him as the incident commander. Uh, He's but, the so, chief, for yeah, God's sake. So it, it's, he says he didn't issue any orders. He called for assistance and asked for an extraction tool to open the door. So he immediately ran into taking on a frontline responder position, according to him. Yeah. Which probably didn't help the rest of the operation go no. smoothly if it seems like there perhaps wasn't anyone really in charge for some time. I'm trying hard not to be judgmental. On this story, mm -hmm. I've been following it closely like you have. And this guy, this guy needs to be fired right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And he needs to explain to whatever oversight body has jurisdiction, whether it's the state legislature or some commission or whatever, why he refused to act while for 70 minutes while children were being murdered on his watch. But is it that he didn't even consider it to be, if he's immediately dropped his radio outside yeah. the school and gone and is just a first responder, yeah. I mean, what he is saying in this is that he didn't make any of these choices. No. But then, you know, if, you're, if you are the chief of police, you've either got to be making decisions for everyone to, or you've got to explicitly delegate responsibility. And, and, and if this is you, true, and again, this is a long story. I was just sort of looking through for something that sure. that jumped out. But like that seems like that seems like a problem. If you're if you are in a, a, you know, an executive role, uh, you don't just immediately go and rush to the front. You know, like theoretically, this is sort of an honorable thing to do. But if it just leaves everything in a shambles and you out of communication. Yes. It doesn't seem right to me. I am not a police officer, John. And, and I can tell you from my time at the CIA that from the moment that you sit down in your first meeting to, to plan an operation or a standard operating procedure, the very first thing you do is identify the person in charge. That's what I would think. The very right? first thing. That is what I would think. Um, so, you know, again, it, I, th I think that as much as, I mean, as frustrating as, as this is and as awful as it is, we, we will only see it clearly if we as you say, sort of try not to be too judgmental and try to figure out what yes. went wrong, you know, like try to figure this out rather than make the focus of all of this uh, assigning blame. Yes. But there has going to be a portion, you know, there a, has a, to be a, some kind of assigning blame uh, process That's as right. we figure out exactly what went wrong. And part of it does seem to be people not knowing who was in charge. Amen. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to talk about uh, some topics that might be a little more cheerful, some definitely not, but definitely we'll, not. we'll get through it. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Russian President Vladimir Putin made comments yesterday that have some in the West alarmed. Putin, after visiting an exhibition marking the 350th anniversary of the birth of Tsar Peter the Great, compared himself to the legendary Russian leader and said that just as Peter had done, he intended to return Russian lands to a greater Russia. Putin hinted at further expansion, telling a group of entrepreneurs, quote, it is impossible, do you understand? Impossible to build a fence around a country like Russia, and we do not intend to build that fence, unquote. In other news, Turkey and Russia concluded their talks in Ankara. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro appeared in the same building that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was in, but we don't know if they met. And the United States warned African countries not to buy Russian grain. We're joined by Mark Sloboda. Mark is an international affairs and security analyst, and he's the guy to answer these questions. Welcome back, Mark. John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. Hey, Mark, uh, before we start with the, the questions that, uh, that I've sort of scripted out, I, I have to ask you about these statements. So I looked at, you know, NBC, Washington Post, uh, New York Times, CNN, and they're alarmed. They're panicked by some of these, these uh, statements that Putin made yesterday. I can't help but to wonder if maybe something was lost in translation or if the comments were taken out of context. Can you tell us your thoughts about these things that Putin said yesterday? Well, Putin was speaking specifically on the anniversary of Peter the Great, which is, uh, you know, Putin considers, I think, one of his uh, historical idols, if you will. But he was speaking particularly on the idea of Peter the Great having opened the window on the West, mm-hmm. as he histo- is historically remembered. And in that case, I think he's dead wrong. I think he has no comparison because this Despite his intentions when taking the office, what he has uh, uh, instead led to is the, the you know through Western actions and his responses the decoupling of Russia and the West. Right. So um, he may aspire to be Peter the Great, but he's turning out to be the anti Peter the Great. Right. Okay. Then let's move over to the Ankara talks. Uh, a lot of different issues were raised, from sanctions to Turkey's planned incursion into Syria, to security in the Black Sea, to these grain exports we talked about a second ago. What conclusions do we know about? I looked for, you know, a, a joint communique, uh, some some joint announcement from the foreign ministries. I couldn't find anything. Was there anything tangible that either side walked away with? Nope. I, yeah. I don't think there was I, anything. I didn't think so either. I don't think- yeah, um, I think there was a lot of um, this. First of all, this whole thing about um, Erdogan uh, once again trying to insert himself as a mediator between uh, R- Russia and the Kiev regime uh, in Ukraine that neither of them really wants, um, trying to play uh, a statesman and, mm-hmm. and as a neutral party mm-hmm. between the two countries, which neither is happy with him. Uh, this this process is going nowhere. The Kiev regime is not going to demine uh, their ports in Odessa. They made that perfectly clear. They demanded more weapons. They demanded security guarantees, and they said no grain would be leaving at least not by the ports they control until they get them. So that 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 I, I 
predicted that that was dead in the water before arrival. I also think it's fairly ludicrous, the idea that Turkish ships would be demining Ukrainian uh, port at Odessa for them. I, I never imagined that that would happen. That was the, the pie in the sky um, plan being presented by Ankara, but I don't think anyone took those negotiations seriously. I think for all sides, it was a three-way PR exercise. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, um, about um, Erdogan's latest planned incursion in Syria to grab and de facto annex more yeah. the territory in northern Syria, I think there were probably words spoken, and um, the uh, response from Moscow was probably, uh-uh, certainly not in the territory of the Syrian government and forces that work with them. If you want to move across east across the the, um, uh, the the river into East Syria, where the U.S. is militarily occupying uh, the country illegally with their local uh, Kurdish proxies. That's your call. But, right. uh, you know, we're not having any of it. And I think that there was uh, an uh, agreement in some places, at least, uh, talks that the uh, so-called Syrian Democratic Forces, the Kurds there, uh, would work with the Syrian government uh, to um, repel uh, any further Turkish incursion in the country. So I think there were some warning words fired. Um, I don't think that Erdogan has made noise several times in the past about further incursions into Syria, but they haven't happened. And once again, I think he is mostly playing for leverage against the U.S., against Russia, against the Syrian government. It's Erdogan being Erdogan. Mm -hmm. I've got to ask for your expertise on, uh, on this grain issue, because we read about it all the time, and it's just not clear to me what's happening. The U.S. has been warning African countries, many of which are facing their worst food shortages since the, the terrible famines that we all saw in the 1980s, against buying um, wheat, corn, and sunflower oil uh, from, uh, from, or that are being carried to from Africa Russia. on Russian, chi Rus from, Russian ships. Yeah, right. from Russia. So they're yeah. saying that this is all Ukrainian and it's all been stolen. Uh, what, what's the story there? Is this really stolen okay. Ukrainian grain? Okay, so first of all, the uh, Russia is the largest exporter of grain to the world. In the world, one. correct. <laughs> right, right. So the U.S. trying to tell African countries, some of which depend almost entirely on Russian grain, uh, in, not to buy Russian grain is ludicrous, and 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 uh, you know they don't regard it seriously. African leaders have actually asked the U.S. to get rid of their sanctions against Russia because it is providing hindrances uh, in terms of financial transactions, mm -hmm. in terms of providing insurance for grain ships to go from Russia to get to Africa, uh, pulling into ports. It's providing all kinds of in impediments for them to buy the grain that their people need to live uh, and to prevent political instability literally. and mass famine. And yes. Literally. Um, so um, meanwhile, um, I mean, the Kiev regime does not own the grain of the people of, of South Ukraine. The political administrations in Kherson and um, uh, Zaporozhye uh, 
um, where the that have been liberated from the Kiev regime, they have all local politicians, right? That have long been elected in those regions. Their party has been politically repressed and banned by the Kiev regime, uh, the the uh, opposition platform, despite them being, you know, the the overwhelming support of those areas. They have been reinstalled. That's what Russia is doing. It is putting the East Ukrainians, supported by East Ukrainians, back in power in East Ukraine, and they are selling their grain. Uh, and their produce, they're certainly not letting it rot in the fields. Right. And they're certainly not demanding weapons uh, for the sale of the grain. They're anxious to get their grain, uh, you know, to Africa and other places where it's needed in return for the payment for the farmers of of southern Ukraine. There, um, so um, I mean, the Kiev regime uh, stouting that somehow this grain is theirs. It's been stolen. No, it's the grain of the people of Kherson and Zaporozhye and. The the people of Kherson and Zaporozhye are selling their grain yeah. and their produce because they're the ones who grew it, not the Kiev regime. Talk to us a little about these uh, these trials that we've heard uh, from the, the so-called People's Republic of Donetsk. Uh, they've captured two Britons and a Moroccan. These guys pled guilty uh, in the last day or two uh, to being mercenaries. The, and they were sentenced to death. I was I was surprised, actually, that they were sentenced to death. Um, the, their crime was being mercenaries trying to overthrow the government of Donetsk. Their defenders say that these guys had emigrated to Ukraine several years ago and joined the the Ukrainian military. They made homes there. One was married to a Ukrainian woman. These men, the, the fact that they that they pleaded guilty and we're still sentenced to death. It just seems very strange to me. I gave an interview the other night. I mentioned yesterday on the show, gave an interview the other night to RT um, International in Moscow, and they asked me if I thought these guys would be sentenced to death. And I said, I, I didn't, because they hadn't been accused of specific war crimes or crimes against humanity, raping women, killing children. They hadn't been accused of anything specific. Although if they were sentenced to death, or were to be sentenced to death, I would expect those sentences to be bargaining chips. You know, they would then be included in some kind of a prisoner transfer or something. Uh, what are your thoughts about this? Do you can you see these death sentences being carried out? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, I mean, these uh, uh, British citizens uh, who came to Ukraine to kill East Ukrainians. Because that's what they came to do. I mean, they all came prior to the. Uh, they were all in Ukraine prior to the existing conflict, and mm -hmm. they were there to kill East Ukrainians for the U.S.-backed regime in Kiev. Um, and East Ukrainians, uh, you know, the people of the Donbas republics, whose people they were killing, have put them on trial. And of course, the people of of the Donbas, they don't regard the regime in Kiev as the legitimate government of Ukraine. So them saying that they were uh, citizens uh, of this regime there to kill uh, you know, uh, previous Ukrainian citizens, uh, that they don't regard that as in any ways legitimate. Yeah, but isn't that the same as what the Iraqis did in, in Kuwait? They, they annexed Kuwait and sentenced a whole bunch of people to, to death and say, you're not real Kuwaitis. Real Kuwaitis are Iraqis. We're going to sentence you to death. I mean, it seems like the same kind of situation to me. Yeah, I, I don't think that, that is really the case because uh, these 
British citizens came there to kill the people of Donbass. The people of Donbass have put them on trial. Um, they are, of course, not going to be executed. Yeah. Um, the uh, governments of the Donbass have actually issued um, several dozen death sentences uh -huh. in the last couple of years okay. uh, against um, you know, far-right forces mostly and others, uh, uh, forces from the Kiev regime. None of them have actually been carried out. Does, does, Russia political... does Russia have a death penalty? Russia does not have the death penalty. Yeah, I didn't think the it death did. Penalty. There is no capital punishment in right. Russia. Uh, but Russia is not putting them on trial and has right, said that right. they are not going to interfere in the judicial process and yes. in the Donbass republics. And that if the UK you know, wants to work out some type of deal to get their citizens back, they need to speak to the people of East Ukraine, to the, the governments there. Uh, but of course, they've refused to do that, even as right. part of the Minsk protocols uh, for, for nearly a decade now. So um, it would be surprising if they would do so now. But I think, one, is that the sentences are largely a deterrent, a political statement. Right. And I fully expect that in time, they will be uh, transferred probably for uh, Russian citizens uh, who have been charged with, quote, war crimes, unquote, by the regime in Kiev, uh, and uh, they will be exchanged uh, that way. I think that is almost certainly what will yeah, happen. I think you're right. Hey, uh, Turkey's Dardanelles, the Straits of the Dardanelles, are among the most strategic bodies of water anywhere in the world. The only way to get out of the Black Sea and into the Aegean is through the Dardanelles. So it's in Russia's interest to have good relations with Turkey, and it generally does have good relations with Turkey. But Turkey <coughs> is also a NATO country. So tell us a little bit about the dynamics there. Is, is Turkey playing nice with Russia, but then providing information on Russian shipments to NATO, to the United States? That's certainly the way they, they used to do it during the, the Cold War. Has that changed in the intervening decades? Yeah, I, I would not describe Russia's and Turkey's relationships as good. Uh -huh. that, is, that is not a word I would use. Okay. Remember that, that Russia and Turkey have essentially been at war in Syria, yes. in Libya, and at, at least through proxy removes uh, recently in Azerbaijan and Armenia. So Russian planes have been shot down by Erdogan's planes. The the Russian um, ambassador was assassinated by his Turkish was uh, bodyguard, and his uh, killer eventually went free. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So um, this, I would describe the relationship. They have a working relationship where yeah. they have, unlike the way the West does business, they have agreed that it is to neither of their interests to have a bad economic relationship. So they right. have separated, shall we say, their military foreign policy differences, i.e. we're at war <laughs> here in Syria uh, and, in, and, and uh, have been through proxies in Libya and Azerbaijan and are in, it must be said, in Ukraine as well because um, um, Erdogan has been supplying combat drones to the regime in Kiev uh, that Correct. they make a big deal out of. Yeah, that's true. Um, but um, but their economic relations are separate, um, and this, uh, I think, was agreed to because, uh, first of all, Erdogan uh, – Turkey depends on Russia for gas, uh, for energy in a very large and substantial way. And also they depend on Russian tourists uh, uh, taking vacations. It's a huge part of their tourist mm -hmm. industry, mm -hmm. and
and and selling produce in Russia. And when Russia put sanctions on Turkey um, after the shooting down of the Russian on the uh, plane on the uh, Syrian-Turkish border, um, uh, those sanctions really hurt Turkey. Mm. So they came up with this deal. And Erdogan has largely withdrawn from some areas as Russian and Syrian forces have advanced. You know, they, he has definitely made some concessions. Uh, and his support for uh, al-Qaeda uh, rebranded forces there um, has uh, been moderated uh, since some of these events have yeah. happened. I describe the relationship between Putin and Erdogan as the two of them are waltzing together across a chessboard with daggers poised at each other's back as uh. they smile lovingly into each other's eyes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Hey, near the end of Sergei Lavrov's time in Ankara, Nicolas Maduro showed up. Uh, I, I read a great article about it at the Al Monitor. There's no indication that the two of them met, but but as Michelle pointed out to me, one of the interesting things as is, is that meetings, normal diplomatic meetings would take place at the foreign ministry. Uh, Lavrov's meetings with foreign ministry officials took place at this palace. Um, and sure enough, that's where Maduro showed up at this palace, not at the foreign ministry. Uh, there's no indication that the two of them met, but... They're both under under Western sanctions, and it seems like such an odd coincidence. Do you have any insights into this? Yeah, I, I would not be surprised if they arranged a quiet little sit yeah. down on the sides of both of their meetings with Turkey. There hasn't been any official word of that. There was also a word from the from, from the Kremlin that um, that Maduro was, of course. Uh, welcome in Moscow at any time, but there was no plans for any meeting scheduled uh, uh, with, with you know Maduro there. You know if he happened to show up in Moscow, there was there was no plans made. But actually, I think the real story here is that Erdogan is uh, once again uh, tossing uh, the finger to Joe Biden. Yeah, uh, because Maduro, along with the leaders of 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 Cuba, of of Nicaragua, of any. Latin American country that is not aligned with U.S. foreign policy was, of course, not invited to Biden's summit of the Americas. But Erdogan happened to invite uh, Maduro to visit him during that time. That's and right. Turkish and uh, Venezuelan trade is is actually they they are actually doing their own substantial business there, um, and and Turkey is buying up um, uh, Venezuelan gold, uh, uh -huh. a, a fairly substantial. Uh, degree there, which I take it the White House is not popular, uh, you know, is not happy with. So I would take this as another uh, Erdogan, uh, you know, sticking it to the U.S., uh, playing the situation for all the leverage it's worth because of his own complicated relations with the United States, particularly with, you know, uh, the U.S. support of the Syrian Kurds uh, in East Syria and uh, Erdogan regarding that as a support of terrorism, yeah. as he considers all Kurds uh, in the region, basically. Uh, so it's an, once again, another complicated relationship. And once again, Erdogan playing one of the major world leaders for every Everything it's worth, uh, including this visit, I think, uh, and Erdogan being the cunning beast that is Erdogan. The Shangri-La dialogue is is currently taking place in Singapore. It's named after the hotel where where it's held. Uh, this, of course, is an annual meeting of defense officials of the Pacific countries and defense contractors. 
There were keynote addresses today by the United States, China, and Japan, and President Zelensky is supposed to uh, speak remotely. Normally, Shangri-La is a place and a time, frankly, to make weapons sales. That's really what everybody's there to do, to eat, drink, have these breakout sessions, and, and sign weapons deals. Should we expect anything different this year? Not on the surface. I think there is a definite undercurrent there. Uh, right now, relations between China and the U.S. Uh, have been described by both as the worst their relations have ever been, um, that they're, they're reaching a, a crisis point right now. And it reached the point where the Chinese defense minister made a statement in the last 24 hours that China was willing to go to war if the U.S. Uh, pushed separatists in Taiwan yes. uh, to uh, uh, declare independence. Um, and um, I, I think that both the U.S. the U.S. is trying to get all Asian countries, of course, to agree to its uh, militarized containment of China and to try to decouple their economies from China. And I don't think many Asian countries, besides you know the already assumed partners of the West, Australia. Mm -hmm. um, in Japan and and to a lesser extent South Korea, uh, I don't think any other Asian powers are buying this, and they simply do not want to get involved uh, in that conflict uh, between the two of them, uh, and they're going to try to avoid that U.S. pressure. Uh, the same thing as they're doing, it must be said, with the pressure that the U.S. is trying to put on them to end trade relations mm -hmm. with Russia, which they're also not having any part yeah. of. It's not going to happen. Okay, we'll leave it there. That was Mark Sloboda. He's an international affairs and security analyst, and he joined us from Moscow. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are, of course, talking about how much everything costs and why, why yeah. just why is that happening right now? Why does it keep happening? And as John pointed out uh, earlier in the show, why does the Biden administration continue to be surprised by things that it really seems like everybody else was predicting? Joining us for this fun conversation is Steve Grimbine. He's founder and CEO of the nonprofits Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action. He's host of the podcast Macro and Cheese, and he is also an activist and evangelist for modern monetary theory. Steve, thanks for being here. Yay, thanks for having me. All right, so we've got inflation at 8.6%. This is a 40-year high. We've got gas on the precipice of hitting an average of $5 a gallon, which is a new record after a series of records, although... As I learned, not the inflation-adjusted record, which oh. was in summer of 2008, when really? in today's dollars, gas was 5.44 a gallon. Oh, how interesting! And that seems to have been what tipped us in. Well, 
Some say, right? That was the straw that broke the consumer camel's back. Uh, This month's increase, of course, was driven by sharp prices in the rise, uh, sharp rises in the prices for energy, uh, which were was up 34.6 percent year on year. Groceries also were nearly 12 percent higher in May year on year. All of this means these costs are inescapable for regular people, right? It's not like new cars are 35% more expensive, you know, or or even cigarettes or something. Um, and yet, Steve, you know, we talked about this last week. Most of what we have heard from the Biden administration lately is that they need to do a better job of conveying that they feel our pain. Uh, what do you think they should be doing? Well, you know, I, I, I think this is such a fundamental thing. It's so fundamental that it kind of blinds us you know, we're so used to free market fundamentalists acting like there there's no role for government here. Libertarians don't want there to be any role for government here. A lot of anarchists don't want there to be a role for government here. But in fairness, government has always been the supposed to be that bulwark, that barrier between us and uh, abusive market power, monopoly behavior, mm-hmm. price gouging, et cetera. And so, you know, you heard Pete Buttigieg recently talking about how the government is not in the business of creating baby formula, as an example. Um, You see our government, I think I talked about this previously, we have no national energy policy in this country. So all these are free market enterprises going about doing their thing. And, you know, ultimately, the free market is bearing itself out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing preventing price gouging. There's nothing preventing these abusive market powers. We have not funded the kind of regulatory environment with teeth that the people would want because business doesn't want it. And so, you know, this is this is largely what you're looking. I mean, you obviously had supply shocks. We're still dealing with supply shocks uh, with things like trade. Um, uh, the the semiconductors that you see in most of the high end electrical products, internet products, IT products, all the computer supplies, all of that. I mean, large major companies like Cisco are telling uh, their buyers that you know there's like up to a one year wait for services or for equipment that previously took maybe ninety days. So we're dealing with the the results of supply shocks. We're dealing with the results of having no energy policy and zero uh, audit capability and enforcement capability. But we're also dealing with something else, too, and that's this new desire for raising interest rates. And what interest rates do, it's it's interesting, you know, uh, what it does is it literally makes the cost of credit too expensive to get. But the people that would use the kind of credit we're talking about typically are the kinds of people that are desperate that will have to use it anyway. And so, you know, you've got poor people paying the price of inflation with 30 and 40 percent interest on credit cards and payday lending and all the other wonderful things that we baked into society. But the interest payments, as we've talked about previously, it starts with the overnight window, which is bank to bank transactions and the cost of interest on reserves, technical wonky stuff there. But it starts matriculating out further. It starts getting to loans. And the cost of loans and, and so forth. And what Volcker proved in the 70s, and Paul Volcker was the Fed chair back in the day under uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, possibly one of the worst presidents of all time. 
and and basically they showed that they can destroy the economy, completely shut it down, and kill inflation at the same time. So the idea here is is that they're going to try to kill inflation by jacking interest rates up like they did in the 70s. And all that's going to do is destroy the economy and hurt regular people. And accidentally, like that correlation and causation kind of thing, right. incidentally, will bring down inflation because no one will be – it'll cause unemployment because that's ultimately what these folks live by is this right. NARU, N-A-I-R-U. So that's what you're looking at right there. And uh, it shouldn't be shocking because Biden's been advised by people from my side of the world, my camp. He has not listened to them at all. He's listened to the New Keynesians, the Krugmans, the Jason Furmans, and all these other fools. And, and he's basically behaving as a free market neoliberal. And the reason why he's acting like he can't do anything is because even though he could do something, it would fundamentally violate that free market belief system that got him into office to begin with anyway. It does seem tragic that the only way that we have decided inflation can be managed is by just throwing a bunch of people out of work. Right. And I so I have to ask, I mean, I think I know what your answer to this is going to be, but I, I'm sure you saw this Axios story that, you know, was talking about the price of gas uh, and saying, you know, it, 10 of the last 11 recessions the U.S. has been in since World War Two were uh uh, what is the word I'm looking of? Uh, right before they happened, there was a huge surge in any energy prices. I'm missing. I'm proceeded. missing a word. Yes, proceeded. There we go. They were preceded by a surge in energy prices, and so that is sort of assumed to be what what sort of tips the country into recession. Although you have people also saying, actually, that it's not. That's not what does it. It is the interest rate hikes that do it. And so I wonder if you think every time you know. When the Fed is saying, look, we're going to we're going to manage this really cunningly. Right. We're going to hit just the right spot and everything will be OK when, in fact, they know what they are doing is causing a recession. Yeah. I, I, you know, market fundamentalists, monetarists, uh, you see a lot of UBI people sadly fall in this camp because they still worship at the throne of Milton Friedman, mm -hmm. uh, the killer of Chile. Um, the, these guys are 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 not understanding at all what's going on around them, okay? So one of the hardest things I think right up front is is just understanding why the fuel prices are high, which will help fuel why things are the way they are and why we're stuck dealing with the situation as it is. We've got, let's say, 100% use of oil the way it always has been. And we've got, let's say, 93% of that oil, we already know how it's covered by various groups that already produce it. So that leaves us with who, who, who has a little bit of room left over? That's the Saudis. And so what do the Saudis do? The Saudis say, well, we've got a monopoly on the last 7% of the oil everyone needs. We're going to keep raising prices until it destroys the economy, until you can't pay it anymore. And so in order for us to get out of that, we would literally have to have an energy policy. We would literally right. have to yeah. move to renewables, something like that. Yeah. But, but to the larger point of what you're saying here, it's interest rates and energy prices. It's both. So interest rates naturally give the rich more money. And what do the rich do with their money? It's not like you're buying extra gallons of milk. They go into the fire sector. They buy properties. They, they elevate asset prices. They create asset bubbles. This drives the cost of everything else up as well. And it causes the cost of just basic goods and services to go up especially for people that are already paying 
the last of their residual income to pay for the higher prices of gas, that means they have to buy on credit, which means that the cost naturally goes up anyway. So, you know, really at the end of the day, there's a, there's no real good short-term answer um, short of subsidies and price controls and, and things like that. But but it would also be something along the lines of just an acknowledgement. And, and we're not going to have that because we can't even get the progressive community to stop trading in liberta- libertarian territory talking nonsense. I mean, just yeah. the other day, Jimmy Dore had freaking Peter Schiff, Ron Paul's guy on. I'm like, what the F are you doing? Why are you doing this? But there you go. This is what is being masqueraded as you know, leftist progressive. It's ridiculous. It's a shame. No, I agree, Steve. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to get your head around because you are talking about, you know, or in this case, we are talking about very big sort of philosophical and political changes. And it's really tempting to think, well, what if we what if we just ignore that elephant over there and we keep (laughs) tink and we just tinker hard enough? Right. Because I was going to ask, you know, are there you know, we, we have talked to you and to other guests on this show about the counterinflationary. Um, powers of of investment, right? Massive public investment. You have talked just now yes. about, you know, what you know the impact of having a national energy policy would be on on situations like this. And so I was going to ask, are there? You like in in the sort of tool set that anybody has now, right? Whether it is sort of monetary or political, uh, is there any short term uh, any sort of short term mechanism that that we could pull out to do something other than to mess around with interest rates, right? You mentioned price caps. Uh, you mentioned subsidies. I feel like subsidies would get a lot of political pushback, you know, because of this idea that you know inflation is too too much money t- chasing too few goods. Hold on, Let, let's stop right there for because mm-hmm. I want to. That is not the case at all, right? And I don't want to get too deep into this bubble here. But the fact is, is that it depends on where the inflation is coming from, mm-hmm. right? There's a couple things. Inflation's coming from two, ver- three really specific places. Mm-hmm. Number one is supply chains. How would you address a supply chain issue? You would build the infrastructure out to support the flow of those goods, or you would nationalize or change how you do your supply chain. If, if, you know, I mean, if, if you found that your supply chains are fragile using this global method, you may have to fundamentally change how you build out your infrastructure and how you build your supply chains. So that's one. You've got to have a different solution for that. And that right there would be a great national investment. And that's what China is doing with the One Belt, One Road initiative. So, so we, there is a precedent there for people actually doing good things and seeing good results. And we just refuse because we've demonized China. So we can't do that. The other one is, you know, that when when the businesses and there was a great article in the Art Guardian a couple of weeks back that showed the um, the massive profits each of these companies is bringing in during this pandemic as they're crying about inflation. Oh yeah, and so we know fundamentally that these parasite CEOs and CFOs and all their you know stockholders are looking for them to raise the ROI because they know that their ROI is key to getting investors paid. And that's what investors want. So what do they do? They they gouge during this price. So there, there's an opportunity right there to address gouging. So that's two, two of the three. And then the third is a national energy policy. And then there was one thing that's not spoken of that I think needs to be spoken of. And that is what happens when you start dealing with layoffs? What do we do for regular people? Mm-hmm. And this is where a fundamental proposal that I brought up on the show many times the federal job guarantee mm-hmm. comes into play. This right here is a 
Like if you ever wanted to see a neon sign saying, now's the time, this is where a Green New Deal saves us from inflation, saves us from the energy crisis, and fundamentally changes the balance of labor and capital by giving a federal job guarantee with a federally funded, locally administered public option, as opposed to just laying people off. And so the opportunity is there to do all those things. We just lack First of all, we lack a movement that understands the stuff. Most people are just sort of whirling dervishes and teacups, chasing little things, little anthills, and not looking at the larger picture. It's understandable. If you don't know, you don't know. Mm -hmm. So we don't. We have a major communication gap in getting these things out there. The other part of this is is more fundamental, and that is that a lot of people genuinely believe that the federal government is constrained like their household budget. Yeah. They don't realize the power of the federal government. So naturally, they I, I still see all these good, well-meaning Democrats running around praising Biden for one point three trillion in deficit reduction, which is going to bring about a freaking recession. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's going it's to bring about a major recession. It's probably going to go worse. It's probably going to become a depression. It to does, be honest with you, it does kind of give you vertigo reading these stories. Of course, I saw that Guardian story that you referenced that shows you know the the companies that have been sort of com complaining about. Uh, you know, raising prices, complaining about soaring commodity prices, but meanwhile, seeing record profits. Right. And then also you have a new uh, report out earlier this week about uh, the the ever growing gap between CEO pay and employee pay. You have the Biden administration really week after week in different formats, asking companies not to raise prices, but not doing anything about it. And you see the, you know, the Fed raising interest rates. And we, we are, you know, everyone, John and I mentioned yesterday, Today, everyone that CNBC just interviewed for its chief financial officer survey said, yep, a recession's coming. And yet you just you just don't see these things put together very much, you know. And so it's like each each economics article is sort of born in a vacuum, like a baby economist craw crawling out of the ground, you know, learning things for the new time uh, mm -hmm. for the first time, unable to put these ideas together. And yeah, it is it is frustrating because there are. You know, I think obviously what our conversations all come down to is that there is sort of wholesale political change that is needed because otherwise everything you're doing is sort of inconsistent with other actions you're taking. And yet that requires just, you know, looking fully at our political economy and deciding to fundamentally change who we are as a country. You, you, nailed it. you know, one of the things that's very important to remember is that wherever there's a deficit, there's a surplus somewhere else. OK, there's always. I mean, these are mirrors. There's always for one person's spending is another person's income. Okay. So the real issue is where's the money going? Number one. Number one, you look at that, you see the flows, they're not hard to find. But the other thing is we keep assuming that the government, and I and I am a big government guy. I'm ready for the big central planning. I am a big C kind of guy, trust me when I say that. But when you look at this government, you, you, you're thinking that they're supporting you. You're thinking that they're looking out for your best interest. Yeah, it's fundamental. I can't. I even find myself accidentally going down that path. Sure. Why, why don't they just know? But the fact is that they're serving capital. Capital wins here. We don't. Capital hey, does win. Hey, Steve, okay? let me interrupt you. I want to ask you one big question, and I've got like 90 seconds left. I apologize. But like, does this tank the Democrats in the midterms? And then what are Republicans going to do in this economy? Are they going to do anything different? Well, I think of it this way. Republicans will probably slash taxes, which will be a it is a stimulus. It will generate spending, which will then in turn re 
jigger the economy. The problem is it's not a balanced rejiggering. It ends up being beneficial to the wealthy, okay? So that's that's number one. But number two, will the Democrats take a bloodbath? It depends on how many are still terrified of the Roe v. Wade stuff and how whether or not that motivates people to the polls or not. Um, I, I certainly don't. I think it's a kind of a, a, a hand wave, though, because they could have solved this by stacking the court. And they didn't do any of those things. They knew this was a possibility. So to me, I think the Democrats are going to take a bloodbath, and I think the Republicans are going to go back to what they've always done, which is tax cuts for the rich and shame people for not doing better and making better choices. Uh, I think that's exactly right. And once again, the Democrats are going to sort of cede this short-term victory to Republicans and just totally lose the long-term because they won't look at it. Uh, Steve Grumbine, yep. wish we had more time with you, but thank you so much. really appreciate you, you joining us. That was Steve Grumbine. You can find his podcast, Macro and Cheese. You can go to Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action to find more work he's doing. Thank you, as always, Steve. We're going to take a quick break here and come right back on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll talk to you in a minute. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The special committee to investigate the January 6th riot held a primetime hearing last night. And while the two witnesses, a member of the Capitol Police who was injured in the melee and a British documentarian who noted in his opening statement that he was testifying only because he had been subpoenaed to do so, were a little dry... The rest of the hearing was electric. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson, a Democrat from Mississippi, and Vice Chairman Liz Cheney, a Wyoming Republican, deliberately walked the audience through video depositions by former Attorney General Bill Barr, Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley, Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, and others who painted a damning portrait of a president who was willing to launch a coup to remain in power. The committee will continue to have public hearings with two more scheduled for next week and as many as five more between then and September. In other news, the Supreme Court on Monday made a major decision related to the ability of private citizens to sue federal law enforcement officers, and the police chief of the Uvalde School District continues to defend the actions of his officers who stood outside the school for 70 minutes while a gunman was inside murdering 19 children and two adults. We're joined by Kim Keenan. She's an adjunct professor at George Washington University and former general counsel for the NAACP. Welcome back, Kim. Hey, how are you today? Oh, doing well, thanks. And thanks for joining us. We're really happy to have you. So I want to start with last night's primetime hearing. It was very professionally done, like clearly professionally produced, like a TV show. It was clear from the outset that the committee was prepared to accuse Donald Trump of attempting a coup. We heard it from committee chairman Benny Thompson and from vice chairman Liz Cheney specifically. And they used those, they used that word coup. In fact, it seemed clear to me that Cheney was even tougher on Trump than Thompson was. And just as an aside, the vibe that I got from Liz Cheney was she knows that she doesn't have a prayer of winning reelection. And so if she's going down She's dragging Donald Trump down with her. What do you think? What, what was your take on the hearing? 
Yeah, I love how you said that. I think you're right. I think she's going out with a bang because she's right. History's going to look back and say, were people truth-tellers or whether they pandering um, to basically liars? I, I, think she, I think she did what she needed to do. But, um, you know, it was a hearing. You know, people don't realize that hearings are really supposed to have substance with evidence. We've gotten so used to, like, these um, confirmation hearings where people are, you know, pontificating and asking questions. So I guess when people see a real hearing, it must be like television. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And last night's hearing, it seemed to be like one half court case and one half action drama movie. They kept cutting away, for example, to these, these uh, videos, uh, previously unseen videos from January 6th, uh, body cam videos, videos taken from... Uh, the cell phones of people who were actually participating uh, in the uh, in the riots. It seems that that's how the committee is going to lay out its case. You jolt the American people with this video footage and then connect the dots with witness testimony. But Congress does not have the authority to file charges against people, criminal charges. They can make criminal referrals to the Justice Department, but then it's up to the Justice Department to. Uh, to actually file charges. So do you think that we should expect charges coming out of, of these hearings? And I don't mean charges against Joe Blow who broke the window and, you know, was charged with three misdemeanors of disrupting a federal meeting. I mean, charges against the players, the, the big name people, the, the attorneys, the people in the war room at the Willard hotel. Do you think there will be charges? I think you're, I think what the American people are expecting is it will be the people who plotted a conspiracy, who weaponized people and got them on the streets, the people who organized this. I, I, I think that if the evidence supports it, um, you know, there won't be any choice or, or it'll be like you can do this and nothing will happen. And I, I think that was the whole purpose of having the January 6th hearings so that when they do indict people, people, the mass American people won't be sitting at home going, why are they doing that? You know, what's going right. on? It's really important, too, that um, they're factualizing this. You know, you know, you said it's part TV drama, part regular um, hearing, but, you know, the American people are not used to what a real trial would be like, right? It's, it's slow. I'm, I can tell you, I did lots of them. Slow, dull. You know, there, there's the gotcha moments are hours and hours in between. I think what they decided to do was present their evidence in the most compelling way. You can tell there were a lot of lawyers on tap to put that together, and they did it the right way. And that's why it made the case as well as it did. I think we need to be honest and say our democracy was under attack. You know, what's really great about us is we transfer power, Republican to Democrat, Democrat to Republican. We do it four years in, eight years in, out, but it's always the same result until now. What was different now? We had some people who just lied about what happened and decided we did, they didn't want to change the way it was, but apparently America, the people, decided that we were going to stick with our democracy. So, yeah, I think there's going to have to be some charges or or there's, you know, no reason to keep calling us a democracy. Yeah. One of the interesting things that they that they did last night was they kept uh showing us um uh Donald Trump's tweets, right? Stand up, stand back, stand whatever. 
come on January 6th. It's going to be a hell of a demonstration. Come and stand up for democracy and all, all this stuff where he's clearing, clearly calling people to action. But it's different than just saying something on Twitter than it is to prove that what he was saying in a court of law uh, was was a call to violence. And so, you know, I came out of this. It's funny. Time sort of dulls the emotions. Right. And I, I dislike Donald Trump less than I did a year ago. But last night, watching this stuff all over again made me so angry. And I'm looking at these Donald Trump tweets and I'm thinking, my God, can anybody be that irresponsible? Or was he really trying to provoke something? I'm not sure. Please. I mean, I will just answer. Donald Trump, I think, over the course of his presidency, proved himself to be that irresponsible, right? Remember when he was tweeting at Kim Jong-un? It's not a defense oh, yeah. of Trump. It's just, I feel like sometimes sure, that's you just can, how he is. if you looked at these tweets and we're like, these are from an American president, you go, that guy's having a stroke or something yeah, like that, right. you know, but that was his behavior. And I think this makes it harder because that was his behavior under all circumstances. See, then that we have makes the greatest it hard. football players in the world and they're going to yeah. eat the hottest hamburgers that I'm going to serve. Kim Jong, we're going to I'm going to send my rocket that's bigger than yours. This is we're the best this and the superlative that and hyperbole the other. And so, yeah, it's hard to pull those out and say they're extra inflammatory when See, you've then, just been been dulled by. And then that tells me that that it, this was not necessarily a, a criminal conspiracy on the part of Donald Trump. Yeah. Because he had been doing that for four years. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's just sort of like, yeah, they look, it, it, it was all, it was just all such a, it was all so insane. I mean, yeah. Kim, what do you think? Would it be hard to, to prove a, a criminal conspiracy against Donald Trump because of his previous actions, that this is just the way he is? that those actions are consistent with a criminal conspiracy. I mean, it depends on what, how you want to analyze it. I, I do think Americans really try really hard to excuse things, a lot of things. And I do think that the reason why they had to make this the way it was is so that people could weigh the evidence of it all. And, you know, when you got the president of the United States saying, well, maybe the people are right. They should attack Mike Pence. I mean, that's crazy. That That's not just. Yeah. Wow. That's not just we think, we hope, we wish. Oh, well, maybe, you know, nobody could mean that. Bad. That's bad on, you know, you can't point to a president in history that would say that about their vice president. No. And, and if you, if you look at the context in which he said it, which was revealed to us last night, it seems like he meant it, that maybe Mike Pence should be hanged. You think he was acting? Crazy, crazy. Liz Cheney said in her opening statement last night, uh, here's the quote. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone and your dishonor will remain. Unquote. Those are really strong words. She also got a swipe in at Kevin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, she said that McCarthy, McCarthy called the White House and said that he was scared and to please send help because he was scared. Um, with that said, many Republicans continue to insist that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. Uh, do you think Cheney is right? 
uh, with the clearer vision of of history ahead of us, uh, do you think that history will see these events as as a, a coup attempt? You know what? The thing about history that I really love is that it's never kind to liars, cheaters, or thieves. Amen. And when you believe that Donald Trump is just a liar and he just told the ultimate lies, or whether you think that he's a natural cheat and because he didn't win, he had to say someone else was cheating. I mean, whatever, whatever it is, if you think he's a thief, I mean, history will not, will not look well upon these tantrums. They will not look well upon these theatrics. And will not look well about what happened on January 6th. I mean, it, that's a dem- democratic crisis that we had. It wasn't just some people and some stuff went wrong. Right. You know, you have to be honest. What happened would not have happened if it had been anyone else. You know, I've lived in Washington since I came here for, for high sc- after high school. And I've seen people protest, pro-life, right to life, anti-this, pro-that, all on the same day and nothing. No fights. Nobody hurt each other. No violence. So, you know, the very fact that you got people outside the Capitol saying hang somebody, I mean, I mean, that's the wild, wild west. That's not how we do it here. And, um, I think that we, we you know, in the pendulum is swinging so hard left and hard right that people have lost track of the fact that there's a lot of middle people who, who, who don't like none of this. They don't like it either side. <laughs> the middle is how we've managed to move forward. I do think this is helping to consolidate a picture of sort of actions happening simultaneously that I think in in real time is hard to kind of capture, which is, you know, over the past year or two, it's it has become clear what Donald Trump was asking people in his government to do. Right. Find votes here, you know, tell, tell the public that the election was stolen, et cetera, et cetera. And most of those people who are actually uh, in his inner circle were smart enough not to do that. Uh, and yet you see, you know, uh, this crowd that gathered outside, certainly, I think not the majority of them, but, uh, you know, a, definitely a, a minority of them saying, no, yeah, we we came here to do what he asked us to do. You know, he was asking he was asking people around him to help overturn the results of the election. And I think that, you know, that should help make the case that he was actually asking uh, the people who had assembled there to help him overturn the results of the election, right? Wasn't the line about Trump always take him seriously, not literally? And it would be a bit much right. at the end to say, oh, no, actually don't take him seriously either, <laughs> I guess. I think so. Right. Definitely take him seriously. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he is a unique player, but that, you know, people are followers. And even if the person is the Pied Piper kind of leaning you off the cliff, you know, once people become a joiner, it's hard to come back and say, I joined the wrong side or, you know, my, my side wasn't honest with me. You know, it's, it's hard. I, I see that. I, that's a, a realistic thing. And we're going to have to confront that at some point that, you know, these hearings weren't to, to convince the people who are followers and believers, but it was to remind the American people that that we don't do this. This this was not, a, you know, I actually had a cousin say to me, oh, those were just tourists and you know, they didn't know the rules. I said, I have lived here my whole adult life. And this was like no tourism I've ever seen in the District of Columbia decades. And I don't want to say how many, but it's a lot. No, that's right. One of the major takeaways from last night's hearing was that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were highly organized and they were armed. 
These and other ultranationalist and white supremacist groups are more dangerous than most Americans realize, I think. Should we expect a crackdown on these groups and others like them? What are the Justice Department and the FBI doing about these these people? Yeah, well, you you know, I mean, I think, you you know, you, it's not like you're going to get some news bulletins where, you, where they say, oh, we realize this is a national terrorism problem and we better do something. But I do think time is coming where, um, you know, it's going to be hard to say that that's not what this is. I think for many years, you know, I mean, let's face it, people did not consider uh, white people to be able to be terrorists. It was just not done. And, and, you know, if you think about it in terms of a historical context, I mean, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Klan, I mean, they didn't go away. No. went underground. And now they have a president who's saying, well, they're good people, too. You know, there's good people everywhere on both sides. Yeah, both sides. There are good people on both sides. Very fine people. Yes. The tiki torch carrying. Uh, they have the best guys, torches. Yeah, yeah. With the tiki torches uh, shouting that Jews will not replace them. Yeah. They were supposed to be good people, too. From underground. And I, I think that people didn't realize they were always there. But if you lived in a sundown neighborhood or you live in some part of the country where, you know, you could just get lost at night or, or and my favorite is one time I got a call and there was a hanging and they said it was suicide. This person was hung from like a 15 foot tree. I don't know anybody who can throw the rope up all by themselves high and hang themselves with no benches in sight, no nothing. I mean, I mean, you know, it's like we have we have suspended our disbelief and now you know, all these people who were always there are now saying, you know what, we don't need to be underground. We need to just come out and say that this is what we want. We want to go back to the good old days. That's why, you know, you find a lot of people really nervous when people start talking about going back because back wasn't good. Yeah, you're exactly right. Who you wanted was really bad. I'll tell you another thing that's not good is, you know, even after we've learned about COINTELPRO and the FBI infiltrating peace groups and anti-war groups, there were apparently FBI agents and FBI informants all over the place on January 6th. And the FBI has not answered any questions about that. We haven't learned any of the answers in any of the court cases so far. Do you think that the FBI is going to have to finally come out and tell the truth about what the role was of the people working for them or answering to them on January 6th? I am really hoping so. I'm hoping that the, the more we have cases like Buffalo, where it's, you know, very clear. I mean, you know, this is like, you know, homegrown hate. Yeah. That's fomenting. I think it's, you know, I think it's going to reach the point where some people say, oh, you know what, this isn't just you know, some some guys from back where I come from and they're letting off steam. This is this is real hate and it and it has real consequences. Let me tell you something. As long as we allow some people to be hated and subjected to violence, then then we're all gonna be subject to violence. You know you, you know, in Buffalo they killed black people, but you know what? They had to kill some white people to do it. I mean, so, you know, it's, it, if we keep think, looking at it as, oh, it was them or, oh, it was, you know, kids in Texas who were, you know, Border Patrol agents, kids. I mean, if we keep doing that, then, then pretty soon there won't be anybody left but the people who weren't those people. But we've got to really start, 
you know, really thinking to ourselves that this is this is something that affects us all, and it and it tarnishes our reputation as people who believe in freedom and peace and 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 safety from random gun violence. It's very important that we get this right, and it's it's not like sort of a self-serving left or right issue. It's a real American yeah, issue. Yeah, that's right. Kim, I want to change the subject a little bit and ask about this Supreme Court decision from uh, the end of last week now, actually, or maybe earlier this week. It's this Egbert versus Boulay case, right? And I, in order to ask this question, I'm going to try to summarize what I think is going on in the case, and then you can tell me if I have absolutely botched it. Uh, But it is about the circumstances under which uh, someone can use the court system to sue a federal agent for violating their constitutional rights, right? And the decision is being described by some as the proper return of authority to Congress and by others as a travesty giving almost impenetrable immunity to federal agents who violate American civil rights. And so in this case, a man called Robert Boulay, who owned a bed and breakfast called the Smugglers Inn, sued a Border Patrol agent, Eric Egbert, for entering the property without a warrant and then throwing him against a car and onto the ground when Boulay asked him to leave. So Boulay sued, saying that the Border Patrol agent had violated his First and Fourth Amendment rights. And the First Amendment has just gone nowhere. Uh, but the Fourth Amendment was being taken more seriously. Boulay's ability to bring this case rests on a prior case, the Bivens case, that allowed federal agents to be sued for a warrantless search of uh, that man's property that resulted in his arrest. And now, generally speaking, you can't actually sue individual U.S. federal agents for their actions in doing their jobs, right? When you when you do that, who, the entity you end up suing is the U.S. government. So you can't, like, sue an individual a mail delivery person if your mail is late or something like that. And Bivens sort of opened a crack through which the courts were given the authority to decide these cases in a narrow way. And the decision here says that actually Congress should make a law to regulate how these violations should be handled. But Congress hasn't done that. And so in the Bivens case, the courts found that, and this is in the words of a Salon article, that yeah, we have these rights, but they don't matter if you don't have a remedy. And if Congress has not provided a remedy, then the court can do what the court must do to to make good the wrong done. Um, this court has just said that almost like walked up to the very edge of saying that was wrong, but they're not necessarily going to overturn Bivens. They're just going to keep narrowing the aperture of cases that it can be applied to. So this is my understanding, basically, of the case that they're just saying the courts are not an appropriate vehicle for seeking redress from federal agents who violate your right, Congress needs to pass a law. Um, and then there are people going, well, we're, then we're stuck. W- what's happened in this case? What's the significance of this decision? That's, I mean, you got it just right. You know, we all want to make use all these big fancy words, but the reality is the court is saying they can only enforce remedies that are expressly authorized by Congress. And um, I mean, the truth is this is more letter of the law than spirit of the law. Mm-hmm. And, you know, was meant to recognize that, you know, we have a constitution for a reason. We don't want the agents of the government violating people's uh, constitutional rights. And that's why um, in extraordinary cases, I mean, it was never meant for some, you know, run-of-the-mill thing. But of course here, and, you know, we may have talked about this before, this is a gentleman who was thrown to the ground 
He was subject to an illegal search on his property, and the the officer called the IRS on him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like he just sort of, you know, you know, like he he pushed him too hard and he fell. It was it was a whole set of actions that occurred, not just one at a time, but was a, sort of a concerted effort on his part. And if this isn't good enough, right? Yeah. This isn't good enough. You know, pretty much there isn't going to be anything, and I think they hint to that in some of the individual opinions. That they're, you know, you better come with something a lot better than this, and it's going to have to be a doozy before they're willing to recognize it. But I think for now, you know, you can assume that, that federal agents have carte blanche. I mean, the problem is, you know, we're being so strict about the, the letter of the law that we're missing out on the larger issue of balance. And whether we have people, we don't want, you know, we don't want the officer out there getting a parade for this kind of behavior because we know it's wrong. And mm-hmm. we know it's so, you know, th- that's the thing that we have to be thinking about. And it's almost like the justices have abdicated reality. Like they, they don't think through what this could look like when it's really bad because they live in a world where they only have to deal with it when it's some nice, nice, neatly package issue like, oh, there's a rule and there's a remedy. And, and and keep in mind, this is the same strategy that was used to gut the Voting Rights Act. These are these are actions that we're seeing time and time again. It's what's being done potentially on Roe v. Wade, and I definitely think that is going to happen. It's going to happen slower now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but these are all the same thing. They're different issues, but it's the same legal strategy. And it is, I mean, you end up sort of stuck because maybe according to the, the letter of the law, this ruling is is correct. But the reality is that you do have a Congress that is that is sort of uh, increasingly dysfunctional and not not able to do anything. And so it's it's sort of, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, changing the executive and then ending up with a sort of rule by executive order where everyone goes like, yeah, this is not really how things are supposed to work. Um, and this is sort of a, this is a temporary fix, but it's not a long term one. And so what is, you know, what like what, what is the uh, the avenue toward any change? Right. For people who say, well, we don't want to have a court that's got its no, you know, the courts to be used for everything, the courts to be sort of every avenue. But I don't know. You know, when you're talking about real people in their real lives and their real uh, fear of, you know, not being having their rights violated by federal agencies and having no uh, remedy, then, you know, it, it seems it seems such cold comfort to go, well, there is a way to do it. Congress has got to do it. And then you look at Congress and go, OK, well, <laughs> never mind. Yeah, there's a lot of brokenness. And I think, if anything, it's showing some of the brokenness in what happens when you have a court that's tilted based on ideology and not based on, you know, really looking at cases and thinking what's best for us as a nation. And that has to do with it. We're not talking about activism and creating laws. We're talking about recognizing that there is a line implicit in every rule and the fact that there's no specific remedy, you know, hell, as hard as it's getting for them to get any law out the door, if they can get that on the books, <laughs> it's like that's a miracle in and of itself. So I think I think that it, it does shore up some of the cracks in our system, and then it's incumbent upon everybody to try to figure out how we get ourselves back on the track. And I, I think that the justices are really seeing, you're seeing a real um, low moment for the court. You know, everybody thinks that it's going to be a panacea if one side or the other side has its way. But what makes that court work, what makes us have that respect for the court, is the give and take of the legal focus on 
really upholding the totality of the laws that we have. And so when you get too much swing one way or the other, that's when you lose the vitality of what we are. One more question for you, and then we'll let you go. I wanted to get your thoughts on the Uvalde School District police chief. This guy seems to live in a dream world if he's still supporting the actions of his officers on the day of the shooting and indeed his own actions. We know for a fact that children died because of their cowardice and their inaction. Uh, That's not in dispute. Law enforcement uh, officials in the state of Texas have said that. So why the stonewalling? What do you expect to happen down there? Well, I expect to happen what's happened every time we've had a mass shooting. I expect there to be lots of explanations for why people thought that what they did was appropriate, even if other people say it's not. I expect there to be lots of, you know, expressions of grief for the family. I expect there to be reporters. I expect there to be graves. I expect there to be all this expressed sadness. And then I expect that, you know, two years from now, we'll be right back here because nobody's really focused on how do we stop this? Why, why do we keep letting this happen? People don't need assault weapons just to walk around the block with them. That's not what they're for. Um, and until we decide that, that you know, it's not, it, the people are a problem, but the guns are the, the, the weapon of choice. And so we need to do something about that. And, I, I mean, he is a study in it wasn't me. Right. I didn't, I didn't hear it. Shocking. I didn't have my best on. I did. I. I. I didn't have um, uh, my my uh, radio in my hands. I mean, he is like some comedy routine um, that ends with "It wasn't me." I got news for him. He's not going to win city council. I saw the sign they had out with him running for city council. No. And so, you know, I, I. I think people will be again will be very turned off um, by what he's saying. But at, but in the bigger picture. Are people going to come out and say, you vote for guns, we don't vote for you? That's right. Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Kim Keenan. She's an adjunct professor at George Washington University and former general counsel for the NAACP. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come back with our final guest. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking about water and national security and what is being reported as the Biden administration's new direct link between the two. Uh, So the the State Department has issued a global plan for water security. We're going to take a look at what's in it and also take a look at what is happening in our own West and what kind of plans we are and aren't making for what's happening there. Joining us for all of this is Guy McPherson. He's a scientist. He's Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. Thanks for joining, Guy. Thanks for having me on the show, John and Michelle. So we have this new action plan for global water security. And I see a lot of reports saying this is the first time the U.S. has established a direct link between water and national security. 
Um, but I also see that the Trump State Department said it viewed water as a, a, an issue of national security. So I guess maybe it has just been elevated as a priority somewhat. Um, but I suppose on one hand, we should be grateful that the administration is treating water security as a serious issue. Uh, but I am concerned about the State Department simultaneously saying secure and sustainable access to safe water is an essential element of national security. But that also it is going to take a whole of government approach to create a more water secure world where people and nations have the water they need to be healthy, prosperous and resilient. I'm just because the people and nations of the world need quite a lot of things that the United States has historically been happy to hoard or at least not facilitate the uh, the free movement of. Right. And so, you know, I. I I wonder, one, if you think anything seems very new about this policy, either how it discusses the problem of water security or how it proposes to deal with it. Well, first of all, there's nothing new about this policy. Consider this feel-good line from the White House Action Plan on Global Water Security, which could easily have been written during the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Here's the quote. Water security is essential to the United States' international efforts to increase equity and economic growth advance gender equity and equality, build inclusive and resilient societies, bolter, bolster health and food security, decrease the risk of conflict or instability, and tackle climate change, end quote. In other words, water security is essential to all the positive acts we claim to do on behalf of the world. Not mentioned is that water security is also essential to everything this country needs to maintain its stature as an economic superpower. Yeah. And I mean, again, why we should expect anything different from this wording is really silly. And here, here is what a grist report cites as most meaningful, that integrating water security into national security means ensuring that traditional foreign policy efforts uh, incorporate and elevate water security. I ju I'm not exactly sure what that looks like other than now let's talk about water on the agenda for all these meetings. I don't know. I don't want to sound like an idiot, but I am really wondering like what... Yeah, you've already said there is nothing new here. I'm wondering if uh, if, if you think that they if they are sort of losing sight of, of what is actually happening here. I don't think they're losing sight at all. I think that they know what's going on and that they're trying to set us up, us, the audience, the members of this country, for a potentially very dire future, yeah. future especially in the western part of the United States. And we can talk a little bit, and, and, and I think you want to probably ask some questions about what's going on with the reservoirs in the western United States, especially along the Colorado River. Oh, I definitely do. I, yeah, I definitely do. I want to get to that in just one sec. I just want to ask, I mean, this is sort of implied by this entire conversation, but is it actually useful to category, categorize things like water as a, a vital element of national security? Right. Or could this do more harm than good? Because I, I think national security immediately triggers a context of competition, conflict and militarism. Is there a, is there any different philosophical framework through which we could elevate this issue that's not, you know, I immediately turning it into something that we need to go to war over? We could, but we won't. Yeah. War is our go to solution. Yeah. You know, two comments about military conflicts. One, all wars are resource wars. And two, military conflicts for, for water have been underway for at least four decades, although they're often disguised as conflicts for other materials. Mm -hmm. The most obvious example is grains. The ability to grow, store, and distribute grain, grains at a large scale forms the basis for every civilization, including the one we currently occupy. But it's becoming increasingly clear, even to national-level politicians, 
that the ability to grow grains is being challenged by the ongoing mega drought on this continent. Yeah. The last mega drought contributed significantly to the demise of several civilizations in North America, and a drought contributed to the fall of ancient Greece about 3,200 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think we can expect similar results from the current mega drought, although it may be worse because we don't have the same kind planet that we've treated well for the last thousand years or so. A close look at the conflict in Ukraine and Russia suggests the importance of those regions in growing grains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. You know, no, go on, guy. You could argue that that's why we're battling this proxy war, or maybe it's blown up into a full-blown war at this point, is all about the grains. They grow a lot of that mm-hmm. in that part of the world. So, uh, yeah, it, you know, it gives me nightmares to think about what is going on now and what is going to happen in the near future in that part of the world. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of uh, the theme of the show today really has been has been about planning and the incredibly sort of naive expressions of surprise that we have heard out of this administration on a number of topics, right? The need for COVID tests, uh, the skyrocketing inf- inflation, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, uh, Guy, people have been saying, you know, activists, environmentalists, et cetera, have been saying for decades now, the wars of the future will be fought over water. And as you say, it's it's wars of the present. They're just not quite accurately described. And so, you know, you have this really delayed attempt to to make something that looks like a plan to deal with potential water scarcity. And then, you know, you, you have this piece in Arizona Central yesterday that asks, why is no one planning for a future without the Colorado River, which is an incredibly sad question. Um, But it talks about uh, the most recent report by the Federal Bureau of Reclamation. Uh, Its most recent five-year plan says that Lake Mead, which of course is that vital reservoir for the American West, and Lake Powell, which feeds it, could hit what's called minimum power pool, which is the point at which all hydropower generation stops, by 2026 which seems very frightening, right? And yet, you know, the piece is saying this, the conversation about reservoirs and how to manage them and what we should anticipate remains all in the short term. But it seems like, you know, there's going to be serious implications for the long term that even at a sort of state and local level are being ignored. I wanted to ask your thoughts on that. Absolutely. As you know, short-term thinking is what humans do best. Evolution by natural selection set us up for a fight-or-flight existence. As with other animals, human animals are primarily primarily concerned about the next few seconds or minutes or hours. Long-term planning is not our forte. With respect to dams on the Colorado River, including Lake Fowl and Lake Mud, as they were called when I was on campus at the University of Arizona in Tucson, with respect to dams on the Colorado River, a headline from the May 18, 2022 issue of the Salt Lake Tribune is relevant. The headline reads, only 25 years ago, draining Lake Powell was dismissed as loony. Then the mega drought started. Five days after that story was published in the Salt Lake City Tribune, Fox 10 News in Phoenix, Arizona brings this headline. Lake Powell producing energy to millions, majorly threatened by drought conditions. Majorly? Really? I'm not sure this person graduated high school, but whatever. <laughs> so regardless of the terrible manner... Of greater importance is that the story indicates the water level of Lake Powell has dropped 100 feet in 11 years, 
and the rapid rate of decline has accelerated during the last two years. The last time the water in the reservoir was at its current level, it was filling up for the first time. Another 130-foot decline, and the dam will stop producing hydroelectric power. Six million people currently depend on that power. That's a big deal. Yeah, that's a very big deal, isn't it? Yeah. And so, again, this is the context. Like, this is the country that is now saying, hey, guys, we got to get together. We got to make a good plan for the world so we don't all start fighting over water. Like, I think it's not without good reason that we we distrust this. And I want to ask also, because I think, Guy, it's it's when we say uh, – planning is not being done, things are things are not happening. I, I think it's sort of useful to contrast that with what could be done. So you can sort of see the uh, see the negative, if you understand what I mean. So like, if we were responsibly reacting to this mega drought, right, and responsibly reacting to the water level levels in Lake Mead, you know, what what would be some concrete things that a, a responsible state and a responsible national government would be doing? Sure. The solutions proposed so far for Lake Powell and by extension to the entire Colorado River system, so far they include reducing water usage in the Phoenix metropolitan area, the fifth largest city in the United States. I'm pretty sure water restrictions will not be well received among the 5 million people in the metro area. And, you know, one of the consequences of depending upon nature and the for water in the desert is that whereas nature always bats last, nature comes to the plate earlier in the desert than in many other locations. Additional cuts have been proposed on farms in the area, not just in the city from the residents. Arizona farmers are already being affected by water restrictions. The so-called solution of reducing water going to farms involves sacrificing food for water and energy. A well-worn phrase comes to mind, it's time to tighten our belts. As with restrictions on water consumption and electrical usage, I'm guessing hungry people will be unimpressed when the empty shelves of the grocery store extend to more than pandemic-induced toilet paper and dairy products. When we're talking about food, real food that is necessary for human survival, or water that is necessary for human survival, that's a, that's a tough call to make. And as nearly as I can tell, very little can be done to turn this around. Encouraging millions of people to move to deserts was never a great idea, but that's what our federal government has been doing for decades. Encouraging businesses to move to the deserts just adds to the difficulty of the challenge. So we've got enormous tech industries in the desert because they're dry, which is beautiful. But contemporary Americans are among the most entitled and most privileged people in planetary history. Asking millions of people to give up their high-paying tech jobs to move to another location that's already overpopulated, I don't think that's going to sell very well. I mean, I hate to sound like, you know, my classic Debbie Downer here, but these are the kinds of things that we should have been thinking about decades ago instead of overpopulating the southwestern United States and the western intermountain region in the western United States and thinking about it 50, 60, 70 years later, mm-hmm. that's insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it, all of this speaks to just a, a, a theme of a lack of uh, long term planning by any government. And I don't know if that is a, a, a feature of our system. You know, I, I don't know if it's just a sort of state that we have, you know, as I think our sort of institutions are. Um, uh, crumbling and increasingly perceived to be rotten. I, I don't know what it is, but it, I, I I agree. Like we we are always sort of slapping 
you know, like slapping some silly putty into these cracks in the in the dam. But at some point it does it does burst. Right. And it is amazing to me that the people who are making these policies are not considering that, you know, I feel like I have probably mentioned this to you, but the phrase that runs through any rock climbers head when they're outside is that geological time includes now, right? Like all of these things that eventually they do include now. And it just doesn't seem like we see anybody at the uh, at the policy, you know, at a high level making these policies, at least anything that trickles out that, that actually takes that reality into account. And that's the role of governments. That's not the role of individuals. Individuals are having a tough enough time getting through the day and the week and the month, much less the year. Governments are supposed to be taking the long view and planning accordingly. And yet we are, we continue to, in the United States particularly, but also throughout the world, we take perfectly clean water and flush it down the toilet. Does that make any sense at all? That makes zero sense to me. You know, foreign foreign uh, uh, nationals that I've known have mentioned that to me, that that is that is waste that's typical of a country that's too rich. Right. Absolutely. A lot of places in the world, they don't do that. They don't take perfectly clean water and flush it down the t- and and make it filthy and then flush it down the toilet. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Yeah, but. But providing access to clean water, drinking water is no easy task. And throughout the world, that's pretty widely recognized. According to the World Health Organization, more than 3.4 million people die every year as a result of water-related diseases, making that the leading cause of disease and death around the world. So this is, this is not an easy task that we're talking about, and especially years after the federal government aided businesses in making these terrible decisions that we made, especially right after World War II, but even before then, going back to the Dust Bowl and before. That's how we ended up with the Dust Bowl. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Dust Bowl is fascinating. Right. The Dust Bowl is especially, listen, Guy, indulge me because I have basically listened to a couple of informative podcasts yeah. about it. That's the depth. But also some of that seems to be or some of the responsibility also seems to lie with just never taking any advice from indigenous people, you know, who might have said, hey, we could tell you <laughs> we can tell you what kind of farming works here and what doesn't. Or we can tell you like we've we we have a little bit of knowledge of this land if you would like to hear any of it. I wonder um, what you make of that and how much of that you think comes into play with phenomena like the Dust Bowl. Well, absolutely. You know, when I was on campus in Tucson, the radical students, radical means to get to the root of it doesn't mean crazy or or trying to hurt people. The radical students, especially the grad students, their popular phrase was flush twice for Tucson. Wow. Because they knew that using up the water quickly meant humans would be out of the way in the not so distant future. And we could go back to, at least that was the dream, go back to the indigenous way of life when there were a few hundred people living in the Tucson basin instead of a couple of million as there are today. So (laughs) obviously the colonist attitude, the colonial attitude, this idea that we can continue to exploit the world for the privilege of a few is has has long worn out. And are there better ways to live? Absolutely. But 
based on contemporary society, we're, we're told or it's just assumed that there's exactly one way to live. And, and the way that everybody lives is the way to live. So if you, if you try to do something different, people think you're insane. Trust me. Yes. I've been on the receiving end of that insane part for a long time. John and I get a little bit of that, too. Yeah. Let me ask, uh, Guy, you know, I, the U.S., I think, is obviously not a model of water management. But are there other countries or regions we could look to as models? Uh, are there any places we could maybe take some advice from? Yes, absolutely. Most of Africa, for example, where you shake hands with somebody's right hand for a reason. That's because the left hand is used for uh, personal sanitary purposes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, where you don't have toilet paper, you come up with other means. And every place in the world that lives smaller, that has a smaller environmental footprint than in the United States is obviously one route to go. But we are so far down this path that getting millions of people to turn to turn to a different lifestyle, even if it means survival of themselves or their children, come on, I'm beyond believing that people in this country are going to turn in mass to a better way. We just we value our weapons too much to give up our weapons, much less stop drinking water or flushing water down the toilet. Yeah, it's funny. It's like we, we won't take that risk, this sort of perceived immediate risk, the immediate risk of giving up your gun, you know, the immediate risk of making this radical change. And so we just accept the only slightly longer term risk, honestly, at this point, especially when you're talking about this drought in the West. Uh, except the far worse consequences of that. It's a, uh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, the same sort of lack of, or lack of foresight or inability to plan that we complain about at the government is, is possibly replicated in the people. And, and this goes back a long time. Um, American environmental analyst Lester Brown was born on a farm in New Jersey without running water or electricity. That was in 1934. And it's hard for me to imagine that in New Jersey, they didn't have electricity and running water on in any place in the state at that point. And he still considers himself a farmer. He lives in Washington, D.C. And he is one of the great pioneer environmentalists. I used to read his books that he turned out every year as part of an institution he founded, the World Watch Institute. And they published their books in their State of the World series. So it would be State of the World 1984, State of the World 1985, and so on. And I used to read those books all the time. And, you know, this goes back nearly 40 years. And Brown and others working for the World Watch Institute in – indicated that the water wars were not so much direct conflicts for water, which is difficult to move, but instead they were conflicts for grains. Abundant water is used to grow grains, and grains form the basis for the set of living arrangements. So they were pointing this out nearly 40 years ago on a very routine basis. So the people who are knowledgeable, the politicians who we say are running this country, they know about this. They, they know about the geopolitical effects of raising grains and of fast rising grain prices. Lester Brown wrote, wrote an article in the May 2009 issue of Scientific American in which he said, quote, the biggest threat to global stability is the potential for food crises in poor countries. And he went on in the same article to write that this threat is one that could bring down civilization. 
In the May-June 2011 issue of Foreign Policy magazine, he described how the new geopolitics of food has already begun to contribute to revolutions and upheavals in various countries. Both of these articles were published more than a decade ago. So we've been warned for a very long time that we were going to have fights over water, even if they are disguised as fights over grain or fights over areas in which grains grains are grown. And it's hard for me to imagine that polit national-level politicians didn't know about this. Yeah, and what you are know, we looking at you know, right now, except to the widespread risk of poor countries experiencing famine, right? And Absolutely. And war, as usual, is the American answer to every difficult question. That's what we do. Yeah, yeah. And now, 40 years on, we have, a, you know, the, one of the first serious plans for how to affect things in the future. I, yes, uh, Guy, I always appreciate you coming on, and it's okay to be pessimistic if that's what we think the reality is. That was scientist Guy McPherson. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Thank you, John and Michelle. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. John, I think we're going to skip this last break and just go straight into yeah. some cheerful news. Some cheerful news. Well, cheer well, We're always cheerful, actually, for everyone that's in here. Not all of it's cheerful. You're right. This is news of the weird. John's it's Friday. Baby, news of the weird. My, my favorite uh, segment of the week. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to bring our listeners some of the more offbeat stories in the news. There was one today at Artnet.com. I love Artnet. It, that's where you read about smuggling and all these different developments in the world of art. Well, I want to start with uh, something that has been playing out in Laguna Beach, California. It seems that back in 2019, Bill Gross, who is the billionaire CEO of the PIMCO mutual fund family, bought a house, an oceanfront house, for $35.9 million in Laguna Beach. And he and his wife then installed a $1 million Dale Chihuly glass sculpture in their yard. Uh, but they decided to cover it up with a net because they wanted to protect it from the elements. Now, why you would buy an outdoor glass sculpture and then cover it up with a net, it's a mystery to me. But rich people, what can you say? Anyway, the next-door neighbor, who's another billionaire by the name of Mark Talfik, he's a, a tech entrepreneur, he complained that the covered-up sculpture blocked his view of the ocean. And so he filed a complaint with the city of Laguna Beach. Well, Gross responded to the complaint by playing the theme song from Gilligan's Island on a 24-hour-a-day loop with the speakers pointed at Taufik's house. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Wow. 24 hours a day. It's like being on Guantanamo. Or right? on Gilligan's Island, you know, another place you can't escape. That's right. <laughs> Well, yesterday, the city of Laguna Beach ruled in favor of Gross. They said that he could keep the sculpture and he could keep the netting. Taufik said he accepts the decision, but he's putting his house up for sale because he doesn't want to live next door to Gross anymore. It can be yours for $25.5 million. Wow, it's taking a big hit. Well, right. one's bigger than the other. Oh, Gross's okay. house is new. I saw a picture of okay, that. Okay, yeah. okay. Honestly, if you're going to buy a sculpture and just put a net over it, just put a big novelty check out in your front yard, right? Because that's what you're basically saying. Yeah. Here, look, here's what, I spent, here's what I spent a million dollars on, everybody. Mm -hmm. I just want everyone to know I can spend a million dollars on a thing. Just do that. It's Crazy. more straightforward. Crazy. 
Uh, there's a story out of Evansville, Indiana, too, that You've I thought was... You've been telling me about this all week. It's so funny. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm going to save that oh, for last. One. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, there's one, another one in Indiana. Um, reported uh, last week, or beginning of this week, uh, there's a bookstore there called Your Brother's Bookstore. Very popular place. Uh, the new owners were preparing to reopen, and they discovered a trap door that led to a room underneath the store that wasn't on the blueprints. Right. Nobody, right. nobody knew about I'm this. Sorry. So it's just a dusty opening with a hole in the wall. Right. So you go down this trap door and there's a it's, it's a hole down there. And then there's a hole in the wall that leads to another thing. And somebody said, oh, my gosh, it's from the Underground Railroad. Right. Well, this is going to be so cool. So they go down there to explore. And it turns out to be a tunnel that goes under the main street of the city, which is called Main Street. And it turned out there was no evidence whatsoever that it was from the Underground Railroad. What it turned out to be was from Prohibition. Oh, that's cool, too. There was a still down there. Oh, that's so great. Glass bottles, tables and chairs, because they think it was a gambling den. In the 20s. Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. That's so exciting. And it had just been forgotten. The owners said that there was enough cool stuff down there that they're going to make a little museum out of it. I would <laughs> love to go visit an underground gambling den museum. I would love it so much. You know, I think some of my relatives might have been running liquor back and forth between the uh, Canadian and American border. Oh, my gosh. So many of my friends from college, that's what their grandparents and great-grandparents yeah, did. Yeah, pretty sure. Yeah. Did you go to school in Michigan? No, here in, in D.C., but there were a lot of people from Michigan and from upstate New York. And then the big story yes, of the week. Please, this please is the craziest in. story. So this is, this is actually covered in the, uh, in the Washington Post. There's a woman in Missouri who had sex with her boyfriend in the back seat of his car, which is a Hyundai something or other. STD. Yeah. <laughs> STD, SUV, something like that. Yeah, sure. She has sex with her boyfriend in the back of the Hyundai, and she catches HPV from her boyfriend. So instead of being mad at the boyfriend, she, she sues Geico. And... How in the world she figured that Geico should be responsible for her STD, it's a mystery to me. But Geico offered her a million bucks. Okay, here's a million dollars. Let's just make this go away. She said, no, she didn't want a million dollars. She wanted a lot more than that. And it was Geico's fault because they should have warned her that you can catch S uh, an STD. Yeah. She went to arbitration. She won $5.2 million. Now Geico is complaining that they didn't want to go to arbitration. They wanted to go to court. But it's their contract that they forced on her and on her boyfriend that you can't sue the company. You have to go to arbitration. So they appealed to the Court of Appeals of Missouri to make their own contract invalid. And the Court of Appeals said, no, no. And you know... You got to pay her five point two million. I initially was appalled at this woman, but now I actually some people see opportunity everywhere, John, and and we should be I like wish that. I could think like she that. She took it out of Geico, so I do. Hey, man, hoist on your own petard, right? 
So Pretty team, impressive. Team HPV lady. That's where we're going to wow. have to leave it. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who joined us this week and uh, the producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you guys for listening. Have a great weekend and we'll see you on Monday.